Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. That phrase, I need a miracle. How many of you have ever said that before in your life? And I know some of you have said that factually. I need a miracle. Have you ever prayed that? Have you ever prayed to God for a miracle and negotiated with him in terms of that miracle? In other words, you say, God, please provide a miracle for me, and if you do, I will give you my entire life. Last week, I was having a conversation with a gentleman in our church, and he told me a story about a man who was in desperate need of a miracle. He was late to an appointment uh, for his work, and he knew that if he was going to be late, there was an opportunity he may lose his job. It was a big deal. And so he was caught up in a bunch of traffic. He makes his way into a parking lot, and he cannot find a parking spot anywhere in that entire parking lot. He's driving around, and he's praying, and he's like, Lord, I need a miracle. Please provide for me a parking spot. God, if you give me a parking spot, I will start going back to church. I will start serving you. I will start tithing to you. Please give me a parking spot. I will give my entire life to you. And just as he was done praying that, a person backed up and a parking spot opened and he said never mind lord i found one how many of you've been there before right like you god i need a miracle i'm going to give you my entire life and as soon as god provides that it's like all right god thank you i got what i needed i'm going to continue on in life do we recognize that that miracle is is a display of god's grace to keep living for him or do we accept the miracle and go about doing our own thing maybe if you some of you in here this morning like I've never had a miracle in my life. What I would deem as being a miracle. I feel like, I don't remember the character's name, but the character on Charlie Brown, where the, I think it's Charlie Brown, the cloud follows him around everywhere. He's depressed, he's sad. Maybe you feel like that today. Say, I just want to start with getting a miracle if we could just start there. We've spoken quite a bit about Jesus' miracles during his earthly ministry. And so far in our study of Matthew, we have seen Jesus heal the lame, heal the sick, calm the sea, and just about every instant, every miracle was initiated by the faith of the people. Now, of course, there are times where Jesus Christ performed a miracle, and it wasn't initiated by the faith. We saw that last week on the sea, where he calms the sea, and he turns around and rebukes the disciples because of their lack of faith. But the purpose of Jesus performing these miracles was to further support his personhood, of being the Son of God as he came here to establish God's kingdom. But one miracle we have not observed yet in regards to Jesus' ministry was Jesus casting out demons. This morning, Matthew draws our attention to one of the most famous instances of Jesus casting out demons. Many of us know this story as the demoniac of Gadara. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. As I mentioned earlier, we do practice here at the church in order to get the entire context of the Scripture of preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter through an entire book. And our focus this year is the Gospel of Matthew. Our overall teaching theme this year is making disciples. In other words, what does that look like? The Bible commands us in Matthew chapter 28 to go therefore and make disciples, teaching them to observe what I've commanded you, baptizing them. 
And so what does that look like? As Christians, first off, you have to be a follower of Christ to become a disciple. But this process of us helping others to become more like Christ, what does that look like? And, and no better way to learn what that looks like than by examining the person whom we are supposed to model our lives after, and that is Jesus Christ. And so the purpose of our study this year is to examine the life of Christ as portrayed by the Gospel of Matthew. Now just to, again, a point of clarification, some of you that have been here from the beginning can recite this word for word, but Matthew's intent is not to give a chronological timeline of Jesus' life. In other words, what Jesus does from the very beginning all the way to the very end is not listed in chronological order within the Gospel of Matthew because that's not Matthew's intent. Matthew's intent is to portray Jesus as being the Son of God and the very King that came to establish the kingdom of God. And so Matthew is writing specifically to the Jewish audience to establish Jesus as being King. And so he focuses on primarily the teachings of Jesus and the preaching of Jesus. And so again, I'm not here preaching the chronological life of Jesus, but I am preaching the chronological um, exposition of Jesus as pertained in Matthew chapter 8. Now as we come to Matthew chapter 8 towards the very end of the chapter, we come across this subject of demons. Now the topic of Satan and demons is a popular topic within the world today because why? It appeals for the desire of evil that we as a natural sinful human beings have. TV shows and movies such as Twilight, The Walking Dead, and Lucifer have all portrayed demonology and darkness in an entertaining and sometimes even a positive light. But as Christians, we should not and we cannot be consumed by darkness. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Whatsoever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. This is the first verse that I, that I memorized because when I was younger, I had struggles with a lot of thoughts that were scary, that weren't true. And I remember going to my father, who's here today, and just expressing this to my dad. And my dad said, Brandon, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says this, and if what you are thinking doesn't match that category, then don't let it come into your mind. I have now passed that on to my son, because my son oftentimes struggles with the same struggles that I've had. But the Apostle Paul tells us to think on these things. Satan, demonology, and all those things does not fall into any of those categories. And so we are not to consume our life. We are not to become obsessed with that. But unfortunately, several religions and philosophies and, and different churches today have placed a lot of emphasis on demonology. And those of you, especially maybe the younger generation and kids, uh, clickbait is used a lot of times in YouTube to, to, to get you to watch their video. And it may go something like this. Uh, Elon Musk has a demon. And they showed this video of Elon Musk, right? It's it's stupid. It's junk. Like, don't click on it. Like, demons are real, but we don't need to consume our time with that. What do we consume our time with? Well, the Bible tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But we are not going to overlook the fact that demons are real. Satan obviously is real. Satan doesn't want you to think he's real because if, he, if you think he's a fairy tale, then you're not going to be aware of him. Peter tells us very clearly that we ought to be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Peter tells us to be aware of the fact that Satan is out there working to destroy you and everything about you to rip apart your faith, to get you to think that God is nothing more than a fairy tale. 
So he says, be aware of this. But just as they experienced throughout the New Testament, I do believe people today are directly affected by demons through demon possession and demon oppression. I 100% believe that. I'm not a medical doctor in any way, and so I'm not going to get up here and try to give you my expertise when it comes to a medical device, because the only, about as far as the medical advice I have is if you have a cut, I tell you put on a Band-Aid. That's about the extent I can give you as far as medical advice goes. But I do believe that there are several instances where mental illness, schizophrenia, others, not every time, not every time, but I do believe that there are several instances where people that have these issues may actually be, could be possessed by a demon. I do believe that. Because demons still do work the same way they did in the Old Testament. The only difference is we have medications now that can subdue a person they didn't have in the New Testament. I'm not saying that we need to walk around and be like, oh, that person's possessed. I'm not saying that. You may think that about your children at times. But I'm not saying that we need to assume that. But we do need to be aware of that. Now, there is a difference between oppression and possession. For example, Christians cannot be possessed by a demon. They can't be. Why? Because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. He seals us until the day of redemption. We are indwelt. We are not always Spirit-filled. In other words, we're not, uh, the Holy Spirit is not filling us, but we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you were to take a, a glass of water and you were to fill, or a glass and you were to fill that with water, you can't fill that with another substance without the water being removed from it. It's the same way from a spiritual standpoint. A demon cannot come in and possess a Christian if they're filled with the Holy Spirit or indwelt by the Holy Spirit. However, the Christians can be demon oppressed. Demon oppression can make it look like you're possessed, but demon oppression describes the influence that a demon has upon, upon a Christian to get you to think things that are completely against Christianity whatsoever. It's a heavily uh, influential aspect of demons is demon oppression, and Christians absolutely can face that. Uh, matter of fact, we see several examples within Scripture that the men of God were used as mouthpieces of Satan. For example, when Jesus Christ was going about his mission, what did the Apostle Peter do? He tried to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. He was being influenced by Satan to convince Jesus not to follow through with God's will. This is what forces Jesus to respond to Peter this way in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you do not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is saying that to Peter, but he's really talking to the influence that Satan had over Peter. So, the question is, how do we as Christians avoid the influence of Satan and his demons? Well, we set our things on the minds of Christ, or the things of Christ. Set our minds on the things of Christ. Again, we seek first the kingdom of God. We don't allow ourselves to be consumed by entertainment that glorifies darkness with friends that glorify darkness and with opportunities that would take away from or distract from the cause of Christ. While it is true that Christians cannot be possessed by demons, they can become heavily influenced by demons if they are consuming their life with things that would undermine the plan of God. But this morning, we're not here to focus our attention on demonology or glorify Satan in any way. A church should never preach in a way that sparks the interest of Satan or demons. That's not our role as a church. Our role is to glorify God. 
in all things and give him the glory and him the praise. But through our count this morning, we will focus our attention on Jesus' power over the problem. And the problem happens to be, in this scenario, a man possessed by a demon. My prayer, and I believe the purpose of this account, is, what we would be, is that we would become strengthened by the power of Jesus. We would become energized to serve Jesus even when the miracle does come into our life. What we're going to see through this sermon is how should we respond as Christians when the Lord does bring a miracle in our life? Because there's a reason for it. It's not just for God to display His blessings upon us. It's actually far bigger than that. The reason why we're given grace, the reason why we receive a miracle, is for something greater than just the mere fact that we have a blessing from God. And so the title of our message this morning is Three Realities Regarding the Power of Jesus. Look down with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 28 down to the end of the chapter. And when he had come over to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tomb exceedingly fierce so that no one that could pass that way and suddenly they cried out saying what have we to do with you jesus you son of god have you come here to torment us before the time now a good way off from there from them there was a herd of many swine feeding so the demons begged him saying if you cast us out permit us to go away into the herd of swine and he said to them go So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished into the water. Then those who kept them fled, and then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now before we jump into the content of the message this morning, it's important for us to understand the context of this passage. Matthew says that Jesus came to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes. The word Gergesene describes the inhabitants that lived in the land of Gadara. Now Gadara was located six miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. If you were to look at a map and you were to look at the Sea of Galilee, you would see in the opposite corner of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and then on the other end, you would see Gadara. Capernaum was the ministry headquarters, the home base, so to speak, for Jesus and his disciples. Jesus travels with his disciples over the Sea of Galilee and enters into Gadara. Now, given to the fact that the demons were cast into this tremendous herd of swine, would help us understand the fact that Gadara consisted mostly of Gentiles. Well, why? Because Jewish people would have nothing to do with swine. Swine was looked at as being an unclean animal. They would have nothing to do with that. And we come to find out that actually Gadara was mostly comprised of Gentiles. And this was actually the first time where Jesus Christ entered into a mostly Gentile region to proclaim the gospel to predominantly Gentile people. This was his first ministry of moving away from the Jews, more or less, and focusing on the Gentiles. Now, if you've ever made a decision to follow God in your life, we've said this multiple times before, you better believe that Satan's going to come after you and he's going to come after you hard. And even Jesus himself was not immune to this. What does the Scripture say? We see in the account of Mark and Luke, we'll look at these references uh, multiple times, it says in Mark uh, that when he had come out of the boat, Jesus immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He stepped out and immediately he was met with a host of an army of Satan's demons. In this moment, 
Satan was literally getting in the way of Jesus' ministry to the Gentiles. Satan did the best that he could by utilizing his army to prevent Jesus from establishing God's kingdom. But what we will quickly see is that no number of demons is a match against the power of Jesus Christ. So let's, for a few moments this morning, examine these three realities regarding the power of Jesus. Here's number one. The problem submits to Jesus' power. The problem submits to Jesus' power. Matthew records in verse 28, When he had come to the other side to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Now, Matthew's account is the only one out of the three gospel accounts that talks about two men coming out of the tomb. Okay? Mark and Luke only focus on one man. Now, that doesn't mean that there's a discrepancy in Scripture. We're not going to necessarily focus on the fact of whether there were two men or one man, because that's not the point. The point is, Jesus Christ had an issue with the one man, and the conversation that he had was with the one man. Now, to be fair, there are some confusion when it comes to demons and what their roles are uh, within the world. And without, again, giving too much time, it is important for us to understand from a doctrinal standpoint exactly what demons are and their role within the world. First off, what are demons? Some people believe, and suggestions have been made, that demons are those that have died. They're the spirits of the wicked that run rampant throughout the world. Some people say that demons are disembodied spirits of a pre-Adamic race. In other words, a group of people that lived before, the, uh, before Adam and Eve. But the biblical description of demons are simply this. They are fallen angels. For example, we see in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, that Satan is designated the prince of the demons. And given the fact that Satan is an angel, the demons too must be angels. Now, while Lucifer rebelled against God, one-third of the angels fell with him into, uh, into, uh, from heaven, out of glory, uh, here across the earth, and also into uh, the abyss. Out of those one-third of angels, God divided that group into two different groups. One group consists of those that have the freedom to carry out the mission of Satan, which are those that are running throughout the world right now that are across the country. We see this, especially if you were to go to countries that are extremely dark, you see demonic activity happening quite a bit there. And you can look at the scriptures here and look at that happening in the country of Gadara. There's a lot of demonic activity happening there. And I do believe that there are some countries that have more of it happening than others because the light is far dimmer than it is here in the United States. But you have that one group. The other group is bound into the abyss. They are so heinous for whatever reason, the Lord has bound them up and they will not be released. Some of them will never be released. Some of them will always be bound forever and eternity. And we praise God that they are not running rampant because there's something about them that are so powerful that God said, no, you are going to stay here forever. But out of that group of, of bound demons, there is a group that will be released during the tribulation. The Bible talks about this in Revelation chapter 9. You can look there if you would like, but I believe it's on your screen. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, it says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and again, this is during the tribulation, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came up out of the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. He says in verse 11, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek his name is Apollyon. 
Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out from the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. It sounds scary. It sounds like something we do not want to be a part of and according to what I believe the timeline of scriptures tell us, I believe that in, in, in pre, um, a rapture that occurs before the tribulation, okay, so with that being said, the Christians would be taken away from earth and we would not have to face this. That's what I believe the scriptures lean towards, but I do believe there's grace as far as timing and we're not going to get into any gritty details of that this morning. But when it comes to the scripture, we have those two different categories of demons, some that are locked away and others that are running rampant. Now, those demons are working feverishly in order to destroy as much as they possibly can and prevent the kingdom of God from spreading as much as they possibly can. Satan is not omniscient. Satan is not omnipresent. In other words, omniscient means he's all-knowing. Omnipresent means he's everywhere at the same time. There's only one being that is that, and that is God. But because of the evil that is spread throughout the world, it may appear that Satan is omniscient and omnipresent, but it's not Satan doing everything, it's demons. So here's the bottom line. Demons are still working today. It is not something that we need to be afraid of because we're going to see later on that God's power is far greater than the power of Satan, but it is something that we need to be aware of. So Satan, or Satan is using his demons, he has possessed this man. This man now goes before Jesus, and he is there to afflict Jesus. Now Jesus is encountering several demons that have taken the form of man. One of the interesting illustrations that we oftentimes see, which kind of alludes to the fact that people think that Satan is fairy tale, is this description that Satan and demons are like lizards with these like horns, right? That's what they are. No. You know, what angel, you know what demons are? Angels. And you know what bottom line all that is? Spirits. They're spirits. They take the form of multiple different things. We saw earlier they take the form of locusts and other things as well. And in this case, they take the form of a man. Now, Matthew indicates that this man was dangerous. Matthew says that he was exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Luke says that this man had demons for a long time. In addition, he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. Now, if I'm Jesus and I'm seeing a naked man approach me, I'm going to immediately know, I don't have to be Jesus to know this, that there is something wrong with this man. The tombs that this man lived in were just simple carvings out of the sides of caves that would oftentimes provide shelter for most of the time people like this. Mark says that no one could bind him not even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. In all ways, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out, cutting himself with stones. Now imagine when this man came to. I I believe that there were times where the demon wasn't in full control. Demons weren't in full control. The man came to his senses. Imagine what he was thinking. There was no hope for him. Society couldn't help him. Chains couldn't help him. And I'm sure that when he realized what was going on and he came to, that he hurt because his entire body was just cut up with stones. 
This man was in deep desperation. And I'm sure that when he came to, he thought to himself, life is never going to change. I have never been in my life more miserable than I am right now. But something very interesting takes place here when Jesus comes to the shore. Mark says that when the man saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshipped him. Now that's interesting, because does Mark mean that the demons came to worship Jesus? That goes against everything that we believe. The Bible says that he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him. And you have to ask yourself, what does all this mean? Now the word worship means this, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Okay, That's what worship means. But if we were to strip down this worship, we know that the demons were not worshiping Jesus for who he was. But we do know, according to this word worship, that they came recognizing Jesus for who he was. The Son of God. God himself. Imagine that for a moment. There was no fool in the demons. They came out, they could see all the other disciples that were around Jesus, but they went right to Jesus and they fell down. And what was the first thing they did? They bowed down and submitted to Jesus. He didn't say a word, but they knew how powerful he was. They knew who he was and they came down and they begged, I love it, they begged for forgiveness, not forgiveness, they begged for mercy from Jesus. Okay, the Bible says that Jesus then asked them a question. He says, what is your name? See, later on in other uh, portions of Scripture, he, the, the demon answers, my name is what? Legion. For we are many. Think about this for a moment. This is where it gets real scary. That word legion, they would have known exactly what that meant because legion was in reference to uh, the, the army or the military of the Romans that consisted of a group of men of 6,000 men, to be particular, to be exact. Okay? When he says that our name is legion, in other words, he is saying that there are thousands of of demons possessing this man. Not one, not two, not three. Thousands of demons. No wonder no one could hold him down. But look at what happens. They go to Jesus, they go up to him, and they these thousands of demons, this army that Satan tries to rise up to attack Jesus, they go down and they fall down and they bow down to Jesus in mercy, begging for mercy because they knew that they were no match to Jesus. Then they continue on and they begin to negotiate with Jesus. They say, Jesus, is it your time to torment us? Are you tormenting us now? What is that referring to? The demons know that at the end of the world, there will be a time where they will be forever cast into the bottomless pit and bound forever and ever and ever. The demons know that. they, They recognize it and guess what? They even believe it to be true. So just because somebody believes in Jesus doesn't mean that they're followers of Christ. Okay, you can believe in Jesus all day long, but you're just like a demon in the fact that they also believe. The Bible says they believe and tremble because they know who he is. They're asking and they're begging Jesus, please give us another opportunity to continue on to do what we want. So Jesus then addresses them, and he, in their negotiation, they say, you see these swines of pigs? They also ask in another passage, please don't let us be cast out from this country, but let us be cast into these swines of pigs. You know what Jesus does? Jesus looks at them, and he says, go. Go. Jesus didn't move his hand. He didn't touch this man. He said, go. Think about this for just a moment. The demons represent the enemy of God 
But even the enemy of God has to ask permission to do something. Even the enemy of God has to ask God for his permission to move forward because the enemy of God knows just how powerful God truly is. And so when it comes into your life, I want you to understand something. You don't serve a God that is being pushed around by the demons. You serve a God that has asked permission by the demons before they do something else. That doesn't mean that God is the author of evil. That doesn't mean that. That just means that God allows certain things to happen in order to continue on with his kingdom. But there's something else I want to draw our attention to here. That is this. They say, can we please continue to stay in this country and, and do what we need to do within this country? Cast us into this swine of pigs. Jesus says, go into the swine of pigs. The swine of pigs then run over the side of the mountain and the swine of pigs die. The pigs are dead, but the demons are not. Why didn't Jesus destroy the demons on the spot? And why did he not cast them out of the country? That's a question I have. Why did Jesus not destroy them on the spot, and why didn't he cast them out of the country? Wouldn't it be far easier if, Satan just, uh, if Satan's demons would have just been gone away? Wouldn't it have been far easier now? There's no demonic activity in the country. Satan or Jesus could have gone in there, established God's kingdom, everything would have been great, but he didn't do that. It's the same reason why he doesn't take care of your problems immediately that you want him to be done right at this very moment. Because I want you to think about something right now. If Jesus was to remove all obstacles from that particular region, then, then would we be glorifying God as much in doing what he was doing even in the midst of adversity as we do today? In your life right now, we understand that God allows trials to come into our life to mold us and shape us. We also understand that God allows Satan to attack us just as he did to Job. He allowed Job to be attacked furiously by Satan, and God allows that. Couldn't God just remove all of it? He absolutely could. He's God. But why doesn't he? Because God is further glorified when we claim the victory even in the midst of adversity. And in the case here of Gadara, yes, even though he left, we're going to see later on about how God's work continued to grow to prove to us that even in the midst of all of Satan's attacks, even in the midst of all of Satan's pushback on God, God's power cannot be contained. And I don't want you to forget that today. Even in the midst of everything that you're facing and the trials that you're facing and looking down right now, and you may feel like God's power is not able to get you through it, God's power cannot be contained. Even the enemies have to ask God's permission before they do something. Jesus says, go. We see that Jesus' power is uh, those that have the problem or the problem itself submits to the power of Jesus. But here's number two. You have a miracle in your life. You're excited, but not everybody else is. Number two, the perceivers often misconstrue Jesus' power. Matthew continues in verses 33 through 34. He says, Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. They congratulated him. They worshipped him, and they fell down, and they bowed to him. No. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, why did Jesus... Why was he asked to leave? Were they mad that Jesus just destroyed their livelihood by the pigs? Perhaps. I mean, that's one way to look at it. When God produces a miracle, sometimes we have to give up other things in order for that to take place. And those things that we must give up can be perceived as a loss, when in reality it's nothing compared to the power of Christ. But what Mark chapter 5, verses 14 through 17 says, is something that's far scarier than I think what Matthew fails to say. 
In Mark chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, it'll be there on your screen. The Bible says, Those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what has happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They go, they see the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed, they hadn't seen that in a while, and in his right mind, and rather than saying, who is this wonderful man, they were afraid because they didn't understand what happened. And sometimes we become afraid in our life because we can't comprehend the power of God. And so we don't trust in Him because we're afraid. It's like the same message we've been preaching every single week. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Why don't we? Because we are afraid. And so rather than embrace this man that did this wonderful miracle, they said, leave leave you know what jesus does he doesn't say no no listen i have a message for you he gets back in the boat and he leaves gadara now won't experience the presence of jesus he won't they won't experience the personal miracles that jesus performs he leaves jesus's own hometown nazareth rejected jesus multiple times and this is what I believe one of the saddest portions of Scripture in all of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, it says, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I often wonder how many of us miss out on a miracle because of our unbelief. Now, I'm not here to have a discussion on the sovereignty of God and what will happen will happen. We understand that there's God is sovereign and everything works according to His will. I do. But I think sometimes we are too busy trying to make sense or understand God's will that we end up talking ourselves out of having faith in the miracle of God. We see all throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus where many of the miracles took place because people acted in faith. But for the perceivers here in Gadara, they missed out on future miracles because they did not, uh, they allowed fear to rule over in their life and Jesus departed. The perceivers are not going to understand the power of Jesus. But here's a final point that I want us to remember here. And that is the possessor. The possessor of Jesus' power has a mission to fulfill. The possessor being the man that had his demons cast out. Look at Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, and we'll wrap it up. The Bible says that when he, Jesus, got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Now we can think about this. We are in the presence of Jesus now. But in essence, you could say this. You could say that this man was so enthralled and in love with Jesus that he wanted to go into the presence of Jesus. But Jesus said no. Maybe you're in the middle of something right now, and I've heard some people say this, I just want to go to heaven. It wasn't a suicidal comment. They just said, I want to be done with this life, and I want to go to heaven. But the fact that you're still sitting here and you're breathing and you're looking at me means that 
Jesus still has a mission for you. For you. Now, Jesus was leaving Gadara. It was no longer his plan to minister in Gadara, but he tells that man that was healed, you go back and you tell everybody in your hometown what I've done for you. You're not coming with me. I still have a mission for you. Matter of fact, I dare say, Jesus said that this is the reason why I healed you and gave you a miracle so that you could be my mouthpiece, no longer Satan's mouthpiece, but my mouthpiece of God's kingdom and my glory. And for you in your life, you're going through a trial. God is molding you, he's shaping you. You've received the miracle. You have been given another chance by the grace of God. You still have a mission to fulfill. God hasn't taken you home. So, Pastor Brandon, I haven't had the miracle yet. I've never received a miracle. The fact that you're still sitting there means you have a mission to fill. The fact that you're still breathing, God has given you another day, means you still have a mission to fill. So what are you going to do about it? Are you going to go back to your home area? Are you going to go back to your job? Are you going to go back to your workplace? Garth, you've got a new opportunity now. Are you going to proclaim the glory of God there? Because that's why you're still here. To seek first the kingdom of God. And if Jesus has to cast out demons uh, to a man that nobody else wanted, the society threw away, in order for that to be accomplished, he will do that. And through the power of God, we can do great things through his strength and might.